Welcome to episode number 61 of the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring editor Jonathan Braun. As we discuss his work with Orson Welles in the early 1980s, Jonathan shares with us his personal and professional experiences with Orson Welles, which includes The Other Side of the Wind, which is the final film that Orson Welles shot, and which was attempted to be completed last year by a crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo. We'll discuss the many attempts to complete The Other Side of the Wind over the last 30 years, as well as some interesting filmmaking lessons that Jonathan learned from the Oscar-winning filmmaker behind Citizen Kane. Also, if you'd like to learn more about Orson Welles, you can check out some other episodes on the Road to Cinema podcast on iTunes and jogroadproductions.com. Those include author Josh Karp discussing his new book, Orson Welles' last movie, The Making of the Other Side of the Wind. We also have an interview with Philippe Sean Rimshaw, who discusses the crowdfunding campaign that was put together last year in an attempt to complete The Other Side of the Wind. We also have past interviews with Peter Bogdanovich, a very close collaborator with Orson Welles, as well as Henry Jaglum, who discusses the book My Lunches with Orson, and author F.X. Feeney, who also has a book on Orson Welles called Orson Welles, Power, Heart, and Soul. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. And remember, you still have a chance to win final draft screenwriting software from Road to Cinema, but our contest ends within the next few weeks, so please listen up. You can follow us on Twitter at JogRoad, follow us on Instagram at JogRoadProductions, subscribe to our YouTube channel, JogRoadProductions, like us on Facebook, JogRoadProductions, and write us a nice review on the iTunes podcast page under the Road to Cinema podcast. Do all of the above and you'll have a chance to win a free download of the Final Draft screenwriting software. Brought to you by Road to Cinema and our friends at Final Draft. And now we join editor Jonathan Braun as he discusses his initial experiences with Orson Welles and how he got the job working for Orson Welles as an editor. So originally, I think he hired me, he brought back, or he brought together all of his stuff. Um prints and videotapes, 16mm, 35mm, whatever he had. And uh, so my first job was to organize all that stuff um, so that, you know, everything was together on shelves and um, it was a lot of stuff. Now I this mean, is from like multiple film projects, oh yeah. not, you know, other side of the wind, probably The Deep and Yeah, The Deep those. was in there. Yeah. Um, there was uh, the Orson Welles Notebook, I think it was called, a BBC documentary series um and uh Don Quixote mm. uh all the magic shows the videos I told you about the uh yeah. was the it Muppets. that pilot yeah that with the Muppets and Burt Reynolds and all that stuff and Angie Dickinson yeah eh, Burt Reynolds was hot but Angie <laughs> Dickinson was hotter so that was I just wanted to see what he was doing with her she's great uh and yeah and Foz, his favorite was Fozzie Bear he loved Fozzie. Did he have a, a great passion for Jim Henson for yeah. what he was doing? Or, no. <laughs> no, Orson is, you know, the thing about Orson was that um, he was an entertainer and he wanted to entertain people. So, you know, if the Muppet, the Muppets were popular, then yeah. he was involved with them, you know. Um, I don't think he was, you know, the craft wasn't important to him, but... 
um, the way they related to people was, and he liked interacting with them. Um, so he was definitely looking for things that were in the popular culture at that time, where he could kind of connect with it in a sense. I think for the TV stuff, yeah. Yeah. Um, the movies, of course, then he was on his own, and he was doing stuff, uh, you know, that storytelling that he believed in and he felt strongly about. But as far as television was concerned, I think, you know, it was just uh, him wanting to um, entertain I can't think of another reason he'd want to work with the Muppets. <laughs> <laughs> so he was looking to sort of get, you know, a, sort of a successful television show off the ground, sort of get himself out there in a business sense and in a, you know, in an artistic sense, even to get other projects yeah. going. Probably using that collateral to push the. I think the so, and around. and you know, he also had a friendship with Angie Dickinson and Burt Reynolds, and um, you know, I think he thought, well, television, let's bring. Um, you know, some celebrities together, and, you know, people would like to see it. I don't know whether it ever aired or not. Yeah, I just know, you know, just from finding it, like, on YouTube, and people mm -hmm. have kind of passed it around, but, you know, I don't know, I mean, did he, do you know if he did it for, like, a network, or he did it, like, on spec, like, off, kind of off the grid, or? <sighs> That's a good question. I don't yeah. know. That was before I knew him, um, probably ten years before, or five or six years, they shot it. And Gary Graver, was he the DP on that, too? I think? Probably, yes. Yeah. Well, that was a television thing, so I don't know. But, you know, Gary was involved in most everything. So um, so what was sort of like the initial um, spark that sort of got you working with Orson? Was it like a job you applied to, or was it yeah. uh Actually, it was. He was shooting... All right, it goes back a little bit. Um, a guy named... Uh, Principe Alessandro Tasca di Couto, I've mentioned this, him to you. He uh, um, he was the uh, producer of a, a feature film that I did. Actually, he was the film finance, the, the film guarantor, and they, I guess, took it over or something. Anyway, he um, worked with him on one project. He recommended me for another one. And uh, while I was doing that, uh, I, you know, I knew him through my father, who was, who's been in the business for a while. They had known each other. And Tosca, as I said, was quite uh, elderly at the time, 80-something. But he was strong, and he was doing stuff. And, and he would call me from time to time and say things like, John, where can I get a circus tent? I'm like, what? <laughs> you know everything in this town. Where's the circus? I said, I thought, what's this for? He goes, oh, I'm doing this thing with Orson. And I said, well, I want to work on I want to work with Orson. No, no, you're too young. You don't, you don't have enough experience. And it was, this went on for a couple of years, actually. And uh, finally, he knew that I had access to uh, uh, a chem, a, you know, uh, editing system. Like a flatbed yeah. Uh, editing. Yeah. yeah, the one that everybody was using at the time. And because um, I was doing, I was working out of this production company on, uh, in Hollywood. And um, um, so one day he called me up and he said, okay, it's time. I'm going to give you an opportunity. And I said, really, what? What? with Orson Welles. I said, oh, wow. He said, yeah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the lab, pick up, I think Orson was shooting something called, um, um, oh, boy, it's escaped my mind. It's a Isaac Dennison movie. A oh, story. Uh, the, Dreamers. the Dreamers, yeah. yeah the yeah. Dreamers. Um, John Moreau, I think. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> In the backyard. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he said, go pick up the film, 
at the lab and go pick up the sound over at the sound house. In those days, film and sound were done different, were done separately. And, uh, you know, put it together and then uh, bring it over to Mr. Wells' house when you're done. So you were like syncing dailies yeah. this way. Yeah. At least that's what I thought he meant. I mean, that's what he thought he meant. Yeah. But I didn't know that's what he meant. So I took the stuff back to the editing room. I synced it together. And then there were script notes, like what takes, circle takes, and things like that for what to print. Yeah. Um, so when he said put it together, I thought he meant put it together. So I did an assembly of the scenes that he had shot mm. and um, packaged it up, went over to Orson's house, and um, dropped it off. And well, I knocked on the door, and uh, Oya opened the door. Oh my God, what a vision of beauty! And whew, I was stunned. And she said, Yes. And I said, I'm, 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 I'm John Bronham. <laughs> and uh, I brought, I have the film for Mr. Wells. Oh, okay, hold on. Orson! The cutter is here. I hate that term, by the way. Don't ever say that to an editor. Cutter. A cutter. Is that kind of derogatory? Oh, yeah, it's a guy who just yeah. cuts stuff. It's like a, um, and she said, and he said, from, I don't have time to see him now. Just tell him to leave it. I just don't have time. I said, he, and she looked at me kind of with a little grin, and I said, okay, here you go, and I left it with her. Went back to the editing room and um, didn't really think more about it, and I was working on some other things, and then... Uh, Late that afternoon, I got a call from Tosca. John Braun, what did you do? I said, what do you mean, what did I do? What did you What did you do to Mr. Wells' film? I said, nothing. I put it together like you asked me to. So you didn't put it together. You were supposed to just sync the dailies. You actually edited Mr. Wells' footage. Nobody does that. And I said, oh, well, I didn't know that. He said, no, you're, you can expect a call from Mr. Wells this afternoon. And I was trembling. And sure enough... I went back to work and I kind of forgot about it again and sure enough about an hour or so later I get a call from Orson and and he said uh, John Braun? I said yes Orson Welles here see my accent's pretty much the same for both so <laughs> I not, don't do good accents um, yes Mr. Wells I'm, I just wanted to apologize before you say anything I have never in my entire and I said please I don't I didn't mean to because you know this is a guy Citizen Kane and Touch of Evil, which is one of my favorite movies, and uh, I didn't mean to do anything. Well, in my entire career, I've never seen anything like this. And I said, well, I didn't mean to do anything wrong. I can put it back. If you just give it back to me, I'll put it all back together the way it was. I've never seen anything put together in my absence. I said, please, don't. And he said, that is done so well and so the way I would have done it. Mm. I said, what? He goes, it's unbe- it, it was fantastic. Please. Please, if you... And he goes into this, like, plaintive thing. This he used to do. Please, if you have time, if you could just maybe stop in, if it's okay. I was like, I'll be right there. <laughs> <laughs> I go over there, and uh, and I talk to him, and we, you know, he said, how did you know how to cut it? I said, well, kind of didn't seem that difficult. It was just, you had the circle takes, you know, I, I saw the script pages, and yeah. um, I just kind of went with what felt right, and um, what I, you know... What, the way I would have done it and he said well it was exactly what I had in mind so I, I want to work with you if you have time if you please have some more and I said oh sure and that's how the whole thing started so we started talking about some of the things he wanted to do it wasn't um, it wasn't full time 
Um, I mean, in the beginning it was. It was full-time for a few months. And it was this, were you on as an editor, or were you sort of like doing a lot of different tasks? Right? No, just editing, but I mean, at first it, it, it was uh, library stuff, you know, looking in boxes that weren't labeled, figuring out what the stuff was, and then organizing it, labeling it, putting it. We had a whole color code scheme that was crazy. And... Um, um, so putting it, you know, putting all the projects together. But du- during those few months, I had an opportunity. You know, I could I would put something on to look at, just to figure out what show it was, what project it was. But it was, you know, so much so much of it was fascinating that I ended up spending most of my time just watching it. And this was like a range of projects from oh, yeah. Coyote, The Deep, Dreamers. Uh, I mean, probably uh, probably other side of the winds. Oh, definitely. At that point as yeah, well. yeah, yeah. There was a lot of wind stuff. Um, magic show. Um, something he did with uh, uh, who was it? Mickey Rooney and a bunch of other people called the One Man Band. Did he shot with Mickey Rooney at that time period? No, this was all. This stuff was all done prior. Ah. So it went back as you know, as far as the early fifties mm. or whenever Don Quixote was yeah. shot. I think it was in the fifties or sixties, maybe. Um, yeah, all the way up through you know most most recent was the magic show. Um, I think One Man Band looked like it was like late 60s because it was in England and it was very mod and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and then different characters that he uh, I know that he play. was also, um, was he trying to make a documentary about making the trial? Because there was like footage of him doing like a Q&A at USC I found on YouTube where he just kind of talked about no. the trial. Or, yeah, no. I don't remember that. The, the BBC series, Orson and, uh, what was it called? Orson Case? No, I don't remember. We're making Othello, or is that a different? Uh, it wasn't. It was a. It was a TV series in England that ah. he had shot. It was basically interviews of him, mm. um, you know, black and white. I don't remember what it was called, but uh, so uh, yeah, I got to know most, uh, you know, as much of the footage as I could, and um, so then during that time, you know, Orson was not super healthy, and the house was kind of on a hill and the garage that was converted into a studio was down uh, some steps uh, of you know at least a flight worth of steps and um, so when you say studio so he was shooting footage within the no, garage no it was or, a studio oh like for editing for yeah, office edit. space yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, so he didn't you know he, he had a hard time coming down so he didn't come down unless he had to or wanted to really badly he never checked on me, so I pretty much do what I want. Long lunches. <laughs> um, just joking. Um, but um, so he would come down. So after a few months of me putting everything together, I would go, you know, and every, t- every day at the end of the day, I'd go up and see him and talk to him and um, tell him what I found and, you know, things like that. And then uh, <clears throat> after a few months, he, um, he said, well, I'd like to, you know, let's start looking at some stuff. I don't remember what the very first thing was that we looked at. But um, he, you know, from then on, it was always whatever he felt like that day. Mm. So it's like, let's put on Don Quixote. Let's put on Wind. Let's put on the magic show. Whatever it was that he wanted to, you know, mess around with that day. Yeah. And we'd spend a few hours together, and then um, he'd go back up. Or actually, there was a pool down there, so he would sometimes go in the pool. Was this on, uh, it was like Laurel Stanley, Canyon, I read? Yeah. Or, okay. 1717 Stanley. Ah. Right off of... Hollywood Boulevard, and Tosca lived two blocks away. 
Wow. It's convenient. The condo. Yeah. <laughs> when you said that, um, you know, sometimes Orson would say, hey, I want to look at Don Quixote. Mm. I want to look at, uh, you know, Other Side of the Wind. I mm. want to look at, you know, whatever the project was. You know, so much Laura has been into um, kind of Orson not being able to finish films or this thing of, like, he gives up. But I don't think that was really the case. I mean, did, did you ever think that at all? Like, did you ever question sort of why didn't these films get completed sure. or what the circumstances were? Of course I did. Um, yeah. I thought about that when I saw the footage and saw some, like, Don Quixote was practically finished. Mm. I mean, for all intents and purposes. It could have been released as as is or as was, but he wanted to work on it. And so at the beginning I thought, well, you know, it was either a combination. To me it felt like either a combination of, like, he ran out of money yeah, or... You know, being an armchair psychologist, um, he maybe didn't want to finish him. But, you know, that's un- upon first first blush. Yeah. And then after a while, you, lo- you know, after working with him, I realized he just takes, you know, it took him a long time to get it where he wanted it. And he had, um, you know, he had ideas about how to do things. Even Don Quixote, which was so long ago, he still had ideas that he wanted to try. It wasn't like... Um, just messing around for messing around's sake. Editors know when people are coming in to mess around. We, we call it uh, changes, but still the same. You yeah. know, So you kind of know when somebody's just mucking around with it. But Orson wanted to do some substantial storytelling changes in it. Um, and he wanted to revoice it, which was funny. Um, he said, well, we just need this character, uh, Pancho Sanchez. Is that? No, that's a, not, that's a jazz musician. What is... Um, Oh, uh, the, the the assistant's name. He would say, "Well, let's." And it was played by Akim Tamarov. And he'd say, "Okay." And of course, Orson voiced whoever the actor was that played Don Quixote, and entirely. But you know, Akim Tamarov's voice was in there for uh, um, the other guy. And uh, so he'd say, "Well, we just need to change his voice." And you know, I think he should say, "Blah blah blah blah." I go, uh, "Okay," but uh, uh, Orson, I don't know if he's still alive. He said, still alive? What difference does that make? I said, well, how are you going to get him to come in and revoice? He goes, I'll do it. I can imitate his voice. So half of those lines in there that he's doing that you think are from Akim Tamarov, that's me. And I said, really? So he had all kinds of ideas on how to change things. Um, so anyway, the, so yeah, at first I thought, well, maybe, you know, definitely he ran out of money because you could see that there was stuff that should have been finished. But then why didn't he finish things that were almost finished? And uh, I thought, well, maybe he just, you know, didn't want to, he just wanted to keep messing with it. Because, look, you can't be criticized about something that's not done and presentable. You can always say, hey, well, you didn't like it, but it's not finished. But, uh, you know, but uh, when working with him on all this stuff, I realized that uh, he had an idea for everything in there. And um, he just didn't have the time and and the resources to finish it. So it was a really sad situation that, he got a reputation in Hollywood for not finishing any projects, but whenever it was a project that somebody hired him to do or that, you know, um, was somebody else's money, he yeah. not only finished it, he finished it usually um, on budget or below and on schedule, um, but not when it was his own money because then he didn't feel the rush to do it. He could do it, you know, any way he wanted, and he took his time tried a lot of things. I told you the story. The one thing I learned from him was about, you know, definitely try something. Um, and he, uh, it was really sad. And that's what killed the cradle. Mm-hmm. 
uh, project, the very last one. Yeah, I first uh, read about that. There was a book called uh, My Lunches with Orson, which mm. is Henry Jaglum, who was friends with Orson at the time. Sure. They had these lunch conversations, and they were transcribed, I think, by Peter Biskind. And, uh, I don't know who that is, but... In the, well, in the book, um, it was mentioned, well, Orson mentioned the conversations like, you know, I, I want to do Cradle Rock, yeah. and go back to, you know, my roots in the theater, and, and then for some reason the project is kind of disintegrated, but you were there from kind of the inception. Oh, yeah, wow. the very inception. So he had written the, the screenplay, and he had no. notes, and he knew exactly... No, he didn't write the screenplay at first. Ah. He, the screenplay, so the guy, Michael Fitzgerald, was the executive producer of Under the Volcano with John Houston. Yeah. And with it met some critical and financial success, not tremendous. But. Some Oscar uh, Albert Finney may have gotten nominated. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, it was you know it was he was doing it was the first film that this guy Michael Fitzgerald had done. So uh, Ring Lardner Jr., who was quite a writer, uh, wrote um, a script, and Michael Fitzgerald um, had gotten John Houston to uh, uh, direct it, and then John. Uh, had uh, John fell ill, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but he was going to go in for an operation. I remember that, and um, and was very concerned because he had emphysema, and you know whether or not uh, when he's under anyway. So uh, he said, "Well, you know, we got to go on this project." He, and uh, and John said, "I, I can't do it," but um, he said, "Why don't you get the guy who it's about, Orson Welles?" He goes, "Is he still?" Yeah. <laughs> so John and and Orson were old friends, and. Um, so he brought, Michael Fitzgerald came over, met with Orson. Uh, I wasn't there for that, of course. Uh, but uh, I came up on one of my days, at the end of one of my days, and he showed me a script, and he said, I want you to read this. I said, okay. Oh, Ring Lardner Jr., I know that name. He says, oh, okay, read it, and tomorrow let's talk about it. So I came in the next day, and... Uh, he said, what do you think? I said, wow, it's quite a story, Orson. It's about you <laughs> and about all this stuff and riding around in ambulances and getting this thing done and WPA and, you know, going on strike and all this stuff. Uh, it's really fascinating. Um, I said, I didn't know that about you. He goes, no, it's, yeah, it's not a bad script. He said, well, what don't you like about it? I said, well, to be honest, you know, there's, I'm sure he's got another draft coming, but and we went, you know, just talked about some stuff. I don't even remember what. He goes, oh, okay. Well, in that case, read this one. And then he gave me another script, uh, Cradle Will Rock, but it was written by Orson, rewritten by Orson. So I went home and read that one and came back the next day. And, of course, I said it was fantastic. I wanted the job. But also, uh, it was better. It was definitely better. And he had some insights because he was there. He, you know, he lived it. So um, those little touches, like the relationship between him and his ex-wife, and, uh, you know, with John Houseman and some of the other people, it was more fleshed out. So the story was, the plots was still the same, but the character and the story between the characters was more fleshed out. And so, therefore, more interesting. So we took off from there, and uh, Tosca started doing, you know, budgets, breakdowns. And, um, and there was someone financing the project. Michael uh, Fitzgerald. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fully. Okay. Yeah. No, not fully. He was. Oh, he was getting money yeah. from different sources. Executive producers. Basically, are you know they go around getting people to put in money because yeah. they don't none you know they never put in their own money. That's like rule number one. But this wasn't like no no studio was attached no. to it. No Hollywood no. studio, Paramount, Universal, Disney. No, yeah. not at that time. Not that I was aware of. Um, but he was you know he had arranged financing and not a huge budget. 
you know, a few million. I mean, in those days, uh, Stephen then it was considered pretty low budget. But, you know, Tosca had a flair for uh, doing things on the cheap. He, um, he actually uh, fired somebody for buying, oh, that was a, that's a story, but he used to tell me these stories also. Um, it was one of those penny-wise, pound-foolish kind of things where he fired somebody for buying something cheap or something, not cheap enough, I mean. Yeah. And uh, he used to tell me, too, if, you know, when I later became a producer for a while, and he said, John, the first thing you do on a, as a producer, as soon as you get on, ste- on, on set, fire somebody. I said, what do you mean? That's terrible. He goes, there's always somebody who's screwing around, but fire him and make sure it's in front of everybody. Then you get the power, you know, you show you have, and, but that person will deserve it. Don't just pick anybody. There's always somebody. Um, that was not good advice. <laughs> no. But it was okay. I understood where it was coming from. So, um, yeah, then, um, you know, so things, you know, met with Rupert Everett. And he was going to play Orson. Yes. Wow. Amy Irving was set to play um, his wife. Um, sad thing was that uh, she was married to Steven Spielberg at the time. And Steven had just bought a rosebud. Yeah, I heard prop. about that. He bought the, the actual sled. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but when, um, I don't know if Orson cast Amy Irving because of that, because of the relationship with Steven Spielberg, thinking, hey, this guy will put, but he was asked to um, invest and said no. Steven Spielberg was asked to invest yeah. in the movie. At least this is the story I got. Ah. Was John Landis ever attached as a producer? I read that somewhere. Yeah, that have... Not that I'm aware okay. of. I mean, don't forget afterwards it went through other incarnations until Robbins. Um, Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins yeah. did his version. Um, so, you know, you never know. Um, but Spielberg was at one point asked to come on either credited or just... No, just to invest. Just to invest. Yeah. <laughs> but he well, was... you put up money, for, you know, you bought a, a sled for like, I don't know how much money. Mm. So I think Orson's thinking was at the time that hey, now you can put money in the real thing. But he, somehow it didn't happen. Now, I don't know whether that, you know, how true any of that is, but that's, the, you know, that's what I heard around the house. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so it, uh, but it did get pretty far, and uh, it looked like they finally got the funding, and we had actually, uh, Tosca being Italian and knowing the Italian ins and outs of, film, uh, of Italian filmmaking, you know, knew who to pay off over, you know, at this at Chinichita, the studios, and you know, because there was a bit of a, you know, way of doing things there, and uh, st- the sets were being designed. Orson was designing sets. As a matter of fact, um, he um, needed somebody to build, you know, models of the sets. And my stepmother at the time was um, doing that at uh, Otis uh, Art Institute, whatever it's called, and um, so she came in and built some sets out of. You know, little foam cord, little models, wow. and uh, so Orson could play with it. And um, you know, I remember tickets were even, if not bought, were being bought because I remember arguing with Tosca that I shouldn't go steerage. <laughs> so you I guys should've... were ready to fly to Rome. Yeah, it was, it was gone. We were ready to go. So was the plan to shoot interiors in Rome and then exteriors in New York? Was that? Oh ever... yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, no, actually, no. Definitely all the interiors. You know, which is the majority of the story, was in um, was in Chinichita, in Rome. Uh, I don't remember. They were talking about how difficult it would be to 
shoot in New York because of how much it had changed, you know, since yeah. the 30s, um, and that they were looking for places in Italy that might look like New York of the 30s. Well, that's true. He's Martin Scorsese. Uh, he did Gangs of New York. He shot all the exteriors in Rome. So that actually That's makes probably sense. what, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we editors don't really... Just give us the footage. How you get the footage doesn't matter. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, we were ready to go, and um, and then, uh, like I told you um, before, I have to. I still haven't seen the the clip that's on uh, YouTube or on uh, on streaming. Um, Orson went to do. Uh, I don't know what happened first, but the story goes. At least what I heard was that. Uh, one of the investors, one of the major investors, was at a party bragging about financing Orson's next movie. Mm. How much of it, I don't know. And, uh, you know, people are, ooh, wow, ooh. Uh, but somebody said, are you crazy? Put money in an Orson Welles film, it'll never go. You're going to lose everything. He never finishes things. He never gets it done. Mm. And uh, he backed out. And uh, one night, Orson, I think it was either just before, probably just after, he went to Merv Griffin to do a, 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 a spot on there. He used to do routines, magic routines, and yeah. um, <clears throat> things like that. And he was talking about it. Uh, he had lost a lot of weight because he was getting excited about going. So he actually, you know, he looked older, but he looked, you know, better health. Um, so then that night is when he came home and uh, had a heart attack and died. So, you know... Don't know if it's if it happened just before or just after that, but it did happen the day before he died, the morning that the money and the investor pulled out. Yeah, that was the so we, yeah, we, rock. We, we always said you know he died of a broken heart because I mean this was his last. You know he was almost seventy and and his health was not good, and uh, I know seventy seems young now, but for a guy that lived like Orson lived, seventy was not young. I think a few years earlier he had tried to get a big brass ring off the ground and that yes. also fell through as well. So I was Yeah, I don't know how far that hadn't gotten that far. I had yeah. read the script um which today is, you know, you look at it the big the I think somebody made it into a movie. Yeah, it was uh sort of readapted by mm. I think George Hickenlooper. Oh yeah, um, that's right. And he did it with like William Hurt. I think that's it's right. it's William very Hurt. very different than I think what the actual Orson script was. I read the published version of yeah. it. But, um, yeah, I think that was like a passion project. They kind of wanted to take this lost yeah. Orson Welles script. But um, I know from what from reading, like they had Arnold Milshon attached to possibly finance. They were wow. reaching out to actors. Uh, Orson was, you know, for the lead role, like Jack Nicholson, Warren Beatty, Bill mm. Reynolds. Uh, but apparently everybody passed. So Sad. it was uh, unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean I remember reading the script at some point and um it was yeah, I enjoyed it. I don't remember any act activity on it. So yeah. you know, maybe that was before my time or maybe without me knowing about it. Uh, and uh at that time was he still very passionate about the other side of the wind and yeah. fin- because there was the whole thing of the I guess the main financier was the son in law of the Shah. Shah of Iran and of course the Iranian Revolution happened in the late seventies. Yeah, that'll put a dent in your plans. <laughs> so so that supposedly locked up all the footage uh in locked France. up the negative. Locked up the negative. In oh wait, yes, wait a minute. It also it definitely locked up the negative. Negative was stuck in a lab. Where there. where it still is it today. It still is today. Yeah. Um 
somehow, oh boy, now I don't remember the story exactly, but I remember footage, you know, cans were coming in from all over. He had reached out all over Europe because he had been, you know, he had been cutting stuff in France and Italy and, you know, wherever he was, the Yugoslavia, um, now Croatia. Um, and he said, uh, yeah, I think some of it, they finally got some of it back from France because I don't remember the exact story now. Somehow it was, yeah. he kept it separate from the negative, the, the ownership of it. Ah. So I don't know exactly how that happened, but I know some of it did come back from France. But that was probably stuff he had had on hand. So it was, yeah, a mixture of 35 millimeter, 16 millimeter. Um, it was really, uh, you know, when we started doing that one, that's when, um, when he started to, you know, it was one of the later ones that we got to, now that I think about it. Yeah. Um, because, we, you know, there was that the Dreamers and there was the Magic Show and all these, which had, you know, um, but whenever uh, we got around to wind, he sort of was a little hesitant. But then he finally, like, we started putting some up and watching stuff. And there was a lot of stuff that was already cut. Um, but since it was in 1635 and all these different formats, uh, we were renting an editing machine at the time. And he said, I remember he called me up to his house and said, uh, I'm going to buy one from uh, Italy called the Prevost. Wind was shot on all these different formats, some 16-millimeter yeah. original that would later be blown up to 35, some on 35, whatever Orson had the money for. So this was, um, I mean, from what I understand the film is, it's Jay Canifer's birthday party. That's one yep. main part of it. And then throughout, periodically through the film, it cuts to this uh, kind of artsy Michelangelo Antonioni parody yeah. that Jay Canifer is working on. And that's shot a completely different way. So you have yeah. sort of two contrasting exactly. styles. So um, the movie within the movie I, from was what I, uh, 35. From what I read, is it all is it like all one three three one aspect ratio, or is that? Boy, I don't remember. Yeah, I would. I, I don't remember. But the point of the movie, as I'm sure you know, is that you know uh, Hannaford's getting to the end of his life, and the industry's changing, and um, you know both from storytelling point of view and from uh, you know celebrity point of view. You know, just everything about Hollywood was changing. So the fact that the birthday parties were shot in 16 millimeter, which was, of course, 133, whether the color stuff, I would, I don't, for some reason, I think the color stuff was shot in widescreen. Yeah. Widescreen in those days being just 185 or 16 by 9 now, uh, not cinemascope widescreen. Um, and in color. And Oya, whoo, <laughs> she was in it, and she was naked. Yeah, there was a, a scene that was released maybe a few years ago, like where she's like in a car and it's raining. And yeah. She's, she has sex with the, the young lead actor in the car in the rain. And that's all from the movie within the yeah. movie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, those characters didn't exist in the other world. Right. Um, the other world was the paparazzi, was the, 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 you know, all the hangers on. I mean, the whole point of the party was that there was a relationship. I mean, and I don't know how deeply <laughs> Orson ended wanting wanted to end up getting into this whole kind of. Uh, this was. Let me make sure. Yeah, pre Roman Polanski. Ah. But there's a little bit of a. Within the birthday party. Philia. Ah. Undertone going on. Really? Yeah, Not that, I, that young, but young enough. You know what I mean? Oh, I wasn't aware. Just from reading stuff, I didn't know that was even any dynamic in the film. It's in the script. Uh, is it? 
it's not with um, Jake Hannaford and the and like the male lead actor. No, it? it's this a young a, girl. Okay, it's male female dynamic. Yeah. Okay, but it's a young girl. Nothing. I mean, nothing actually happened, but there was inferred. That yeah, something. And he was trying. Yeah, I mean, there was. You know, by today's standards, it would have been considered. Well, the pedophilia part was definitely by today's standards. Now, I don't know in the script she was underage. I don't know if in the movie she was underage. Um, but she was definitely, you know, a young girl, you know, teenage, probably late teenage. But, um, you know, in those days, again, 70s, early 70s, yeah. you know, we think of it being so, uh, uh, you know, uh, groundbreaking at the time, Easy Rider and all this stuff that it was just freewheeling everything. It really wasn't, but there was a feeling of that. So I think Orson was shooting stuff very freewheeling, very kind of, you know, off the cuff. Like I was, I was reading in the uh, in the Josh Cart book. Um, yeah, he mentions in that that you know Orson would shoot like, for example, uh, some you know this is all being one scene. Like he would shoot somebody's mm-hmm. close up, and then he'd just stop, and then he'd wait a year, and then find the actor <laughs> that would play the other role, and then yeah. shoot him close up, and you know then shoot inserts of this. So he never shot like the whole like a master shot yeah. or anything. It was just no, it was all over everywhere. the place. Yeah. So that must have sure. been difficult just to assemble things, sound, picture-wise, just oh. continuity. Well, like I said, the, you know, the good news was that a lot of it, there was a lot of it that had already been cut yeah. over the years. You know, I mean, in France, in Italy, wherever he was, um, you know, he would pull it out and work on it. Excuse me, but um, he, um, so most of the time we worked together, it was kind of recutting stuff. Uh, and, it, you know, there was some footage that hadn't been touched yet. Um, I don't know why we never got to that stuff. I think. Did just, you view the footage, or you just didn't? Me, personally? Yeah, I, yeah, I looked at everything, oh. sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this was just stuff that you just hadn't gone around to editing yeah. or whatever? Yeah, not all that important. Some of it, some of it was. And I think Gary ended up, may have edited some of it Yeah. and put it in that... 45 minute demo reel that's Gary Graver the DP of the yeah. film and, yeah. and then they had the screening FX Feeney and, but this was in the 80s late 80s um, they had a screening at the, some private screen room and investors came and uh, it was I went with Tosca and you know when it was done 45 minutes long or something mm-hmm. it was done we sort of looked at each other like oh my god this doesn't make any sense. It sort of goes to show you that, you know, sort of you have to, even if the footage is great and the performance is everything else, you still have to, like, sculpt the movie to yeah. make it, you know, make sense in a way, you know. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the you know, uh, Orson even would say that the script is a blueprint. How you build the building, you might have to change a few things as you're building the building. Yeah. But, the, you know, the script is the blueprint to, you know, and it's got to be a good blueprint. Um or was it foundation? Well, anyway, some metaphor. And uh, <clears throat> but yeah, when you're in the editing room, any you know, you got to make choices about what's going to make the scene really come alive and what's going to make it make sense. Yeah. And, and you told me the the Gary Graver cut that was shown at that screening. It was not the first 45 minutes of the film. It was just different portions, like yeah. different sequences from all all over the place. Right. Yes, it was. It, it was, and it was made no sense it also goes to tell you that if you're a DP stick to being a DP and if you're an editor maybe anyway or a director but Gary kind of thought of himself as a director he ended up directing some ultra low budget yeah. 
yeah. movies, not all of which got rated by the MPAA. Well, I know he did some like adult, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> adult film pornos in there. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's all right. They made money. Yeah. Um, and then he also he made this documentary. I found at um, at a place called Cinephile Video over mm-hmm. in West LA. I think it's called like Making Orson Welles or something to that effect, where he like interviewed like Frank Marshall and Peter Bogdanovich. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, maybe this was that. really in the late '90s or something. He released mm-hmm. it, and uh, it just has like little pieces of stuff. Mm. I don't think any other side of the wind footage, but they just kind of talk about it a little bit. Well, I mean, he was yeah. I'm, I'm, actually, I'd be interested to see that. Um, Gary worked on just about everything. Oh, working with Orson Welles. That's what it that's was called. called. Yeah. yeah, I'll have to look for that. Um, found out by the way, Josh Carp is from my hometown. Oh, really? Glencoe, Illinois. Wow. So I got. Did you have a chance to look through any of the book? No, I didn't. Ah. But I did read some reviews of it, and I, I think I, I'm going to call him because we're from Glen. We're both from Glencoe. Yeah, you got that connection um, right there. And ask him why he didn't call me. But I'm pretty sure, judging from what I've read about the book, is that it doesn't it was more about the making of and the financing and you know the making of the yeah uh, the production so I think it kind of it, I you know I don't think it has a lot to do you read it right yeah did it have much to do with the editing or anything or uh, yeah I mean it goes into sort of the post shoot and all the drama that happened afterwards um, right so afterwards in, or yeah right after it but it not goes the up, 80s well yeah it goes up to his to his death oh really yeah. well then he should have fucker should have like, called uh, me uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> and he interviewed um, what's her name oh uh, yeah no, well, not. Uh, I was going to say an assistant that worked with Orson in the '80s, who was the wife of a screenwriter named uh, oh. Jack Epps, I think. Oh no, that's not. That's um, but uh, yeah, so that's why I was kind of surprised that he didn't. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, now I'm now I'm really I'm pissed off. <laughs> I'll, I'll give him a call and ask him and see. But um, yeah. in, the, in the new version that he publishes, maybe. Yeah. Right. The, <laughs> an addendum. Road. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be nice. It'd be a footnote again. But it was, um, but the footage, like I said, was really fascinating and interesting to see. You know, having watched the footage first, and then to see what Orson did wanted to do with it, was both like um, interesting and fascinating, but also very educational. Hmm. And for me, because you know, being a young whippersnapper, um, you know, I think I told you I was kind of full of myself big-time editor at 24 years old. Same age Orson was when he made Citizen Kane. That wasn't lost on me. But anyway, um, so I thought I knew a lot. I'd been to film school. I'd been, you know, graduated from UCLA. I'd actually gone to USC one year in the film department and too expensive. Moved over to UCLA. Much better program. Um, You know, I thought I knew a lot, but (laughs) one thing Orson taught me was humility and, uh, you know, that there are people out there that really know what they're doing and not think they know what they're doing. So it was uh, it really fascinating and, and quite an education to, to work with him on that stuff. Now, we never really finished any. We, you know, work on scenes, scene by scene. Um, we cut a bunch of stuff. I mean, a lot of it had been cut prior, and I'm sure some of that was in Gary's. Um, but it was such a mess. I mean, it was all... The story didn't make sense, and... You know, the, the interrelations didn't make sense. The party made no sense. I mean, it just... I have, like, five different versions of that script that I've gotten along the way. And they're thick. They're really thick. <laughs> um, 
so in, by five different, so it's sort of five different drafts yes. that he's gone that yeah. he went through. Yeah, some you know major changes, not many. Um, so yeah, did it make more sense in the script than it did in the footage that you looked at? I think the script again was uh, you know the basis for what Orson was doing. I think he had a lot of it in his head. Yeah, and. Uh, I think, like you said, you know, he would shoot some of it now, and then a few years later, he'd shoot some others. So, you know, the cuts that um, that we worked on, you know, they made sense, and he would make them smoother, and they would get they would make more sense. But you know, it was like a, a jigsaw puzzle with islands of pieces that have been put together. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, like maybe twenty pieces went together here. Oh, I, that's the sun right there with the, the clouds, and then over here is the horse and the. But, but there was all this stuff in between that uh, we hadn't gotten to. And now, interestingly, um, I, when I talked to Peter about working on it, um, you know, uh, nobody had really thought this was ever going to get finished for many years. Until, and so this is sort of like down the road, like what they did the, sort of the Showtime yeah. deal so and stuff. So yeah, when I so when 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 I when I found out that this was going on and. You know, Peter called, and I went and had a meeting with him about it. And um, the footage was being transferred to video, to digital. Now, by the, the footage, you don't print. mean the footage from France. No. You just mean the footage yeah. that they had here. The print. Uh, yeah. Who had possession of that material at the time? Was it? Oya. Oya, okay. Well, Sasha threw Oya. Sasha is Oya's nephew. Ah. And Orson's nephew, legally, somehow, I don't know how it happened, but... Oy, uh, Orson kind of adopted him somehow as a nephew or something. I don't know exactly. Oh, so what. he's not blood to Orson, then? not he... blood. No. Okay. It looks like him a little. Yeah, bit. Yeah, because I keep like I read like um, like press reports have come out about like the other side of the windy. Yeah. He keeps the Sasha Wells, and I keep his last that. name is Wells. He had it officially changed. Ah, so. That's interesting. Um, and he was in as a uh, little child. He was in F is for Fake. He was the kid at the train station that gets the coins in his hands. Oh, wow. So um, so anyways, I'm there and the stuff is being transferred and talk, you know, looked like it was going to happen and Showtime deal is not a lot of money. It's not a big production. So I knew they didn't have a lot of money to hire people and I offered to work on it um, for, you know, basically expenses because I just wanted to work on it yeah. and it was done. And uh, I said, look, uh, I don't know if it's serendipity or if it's, you know, fate or whatever. But my training over the last 10 years doing reality TV, because I'd gotten into television, movies of the week were first, and then episodic, and uh, then reality. I, so, yeah, I read you did Survivor, The yeah, Apprentice, first really big shows. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was trained to look through footage to find stories mm-hmm. and to you know, create uh, scenes out of seamless, seemingly meaningless stuff. So it was kind of like a... a, a, a you know, a perfect um, training for doing this uh, other side of the wind now because, you know, I have a lot more confidence in my ability to go through things unattended, uh, yeah. you know, looking for stories, looking for pieces that might fit here and there. Um, you know, where uh, before that it was always by the script. And I told that to Peter and he was like, you're absolutely right. Now, I also have the history of knowing all the footage and, and the history of reading all the different drafts. So I kind of have, you know... Very so, intimate knowledge of, yeah. of what the film is. Yeah. So uh, at that time, he said, yeah, no, I definitely want to work with you. And I said, sure. Um, that never happened. And um, for various reasons. I think there was a shakeup at Showtime and uh, other things, money 
they never agreed so on was, money. Was the intention um, as well to put together footage and then also go back to the actual negative footage in France and yeah. figure out ways to get that? Yeah. Well, they thought they had it because, you know, even then, I think somebody had died, the guy, the original guy. Oh, uh, Boucher? No, no, yeah, he didn't die. He, uh, well, I don't know if he died or whatever, but some, yeah, yeah. what the hell was his name? You're right. Uh, he, had, he had freed it up. He had given up his rights to it. In France, they have, there are two rights you have. Rights of ownership, like in the United States, it's like he who has, you know, what is it? What's that expression? Um, possession is nine tenths of the law. Yeah. <laughs> so if you have it, it's like nine tenths years. In France, it's not. It's like fifty-fifty uh, with. Uh, uh, um, oh, there's like the artist yeah. rights or something. Artist rights, droit. Uh, um, I can't remember the opposite of gauche. Uh, anyway, yes, the rights of. Uh, the artist implied. So if you make something, whether or not you've signed anything, whether or not you've given anything away, if you're the artist, you still own a portion of the, the, the I think half. And then the other, the other and so that's the, the, the problem. Uh, so bougerie, bougerie. Oh, it? bougerie, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, he's brought up a lot in the car yeah. book, the whole history of yeah. him and that situation. And it goes, it also goes into the Showtime deal as well. Oh, it does? Yeah, which oh, that's another thing why I was wondering me. why you weren't... Uh, Mentioning that. Well, you know, editors, <laughs> we never get our due. On the Showtime deal, I was yeah. curious. So, over the years from the time Morrison died in '85 up to that Showtime uh, deal, I mean, was it just very difficult in terms of finding well, places where the other side of the wind could be completed, or it was sort of the tech? Yeah, the, the 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 blocking the blocking point was that negative was tied up in uh, in France yeah. and would not. Bougerie wanted a lot of money, more than oil wanted, mm. which. Surprising, because um, you know, believe me, I actually tried to help get it made. I mean, my dad tried to help um, finance, find financing, and um, there was this other German guy that I that I knew um, who had done a lot of movies in German. One, uh, my dad and he had worked together on Marlena Dietrich, a, a documentary called Marlena. Oh, such a great documentary! Yeah, I isn't saw that great? On Netflix recently. I've never oh, yeah. seen anything it, because she refused to go on camera. So they found this really unique way of yeah. shooting around it. Max Schell, yeah, yeah, great, it was film. fascinating. Yeah. So it was nominated for Academy Award, and my dad was the executive producer with this German guy who um, I became friends with, um, and. Uh, so I tried to get him, and they were all. Everybody was interested, but as soon as they found out that the negative was locked away in France, and would have to have Bougeries, um, you know, he'd have to be satisfied financially as well as Oya, yeah. and they never met, and so they never. I mean, you know, financially they never, their their desires were never met. So uh, it just kind of, you know, languished for years, and then uh, Bougerie died, or something happened, and. Somebody else got a hold of it. They were more interested uh, in getting some money rather than no money. So um, I think Showtime bought them out. Mm. Uh, I'm pretty sure. But then they went to Oya thinking, oh, Oya will do the same thing. No, I said, no. <laughs> My price goes up now. and Now I'm the only person you need. So and time had gone by. So, um, you know, so they had to try to find her money. So they, you know, got options. Showtime uh, had bought some options. Uh, in the meantime, they were looking at the footage to see if anything could be done. That's when Peter was called in. That's when I went to meet with Peter, and we were supposed to start working together, and then the deal fell through. Uh, there was a shake-up at Showtime. Um, 
yeah, there was. Uh, I had actually um, suggested an idea to them about maybe doing a film about the making of the film, like a documentary. Yeah, of the of the editing of the film. Huh. Like you know, would start with going into the vaults, you know, because they had kept them in these old vaults in Hollywood, you know, creaking doors, kind of air conditioned, but still. Um, really old, you know, kind of vaults, and then you know going to France and being there when they got the negative out, and and then coming to the editing room and you know doing yeah, the, that'd be a great companion piece. And you yeah. watch that in conjunction with the film. And, I thought so. Yeah, Showtime didn't think so. Maybe they just didn't want to put up the money. For <laughs> yeah, I think that. they they're think still that. But that's why I said it's like think about it. Even if the movie can't be put together, yeah, you still have a, a documentary. Yeah. Um, I just want, you know, I just really want to see it get done. I'd love to be a part of it. But when this started coming up, I had heard about it. And um, I guess this guy, Philip, had uh, been talking to them for a while and trying to get things done. But he would be like, well, just give me the footage and so I can make a reel and then I'll get the money to pay you. And they're like, no, it doesn't work. Can't, we can't do that. I don't know. you heard through uh, Oya. Yeah. Yeah. And they would say, no, and so he tried this, he tried that, then he said he had this, he said he had that. And, um, you know, who knows? If he could do it, it would be great. But I think that old thing about Orson being unreliable mm-hmm. and that, uh, you know, I think that still, yeah, yeah, still haunts him to this day. And uh, it's a shame because, um, I mean, you know, it's a f- and what's really interesting about it, and then uh, obviously you've seen, the, did you see the 45-minute version? I wish. Uh, have you seen any of it? You've <laughs> seen know, some clips. All I've seen is what's, what was on YouTube, which yeah. is, um, so I can tell you exactly what i birthday party. Because I, I'm fascinated by uh, this. The birthday party, the, uh, like maybe, I mean, not the birthday party, actually the scene where it's like a soundstage and uh-huh. uh, it's Peter Bogdanovich, John Houston, and they're being interviewed by like oh, Susan yeah. Strasberg. Yeah. And it maybe goes on, for, and it's all these other press people. And maybe it goes on for like a couple minutes. Yeah. And then the other scene is uh, in the car, you know, we talked yeah. about earlier, Oya, the sort of a sex scene. And then. Uh, gorgeous. There's another one, Henry Jaglum and Paul Mazursky. They're having an uh-huh. argument. Uh huh. And then the last one would be uh, Dennis Hopper just talking. I think it's, it was actually intercut with the Jaglum Mazursky footage. Mm. Sort of, they're, Jaglum Mazursky are debating about film, about, you know, in a very their pretentious styles. way. Yeah, in a very pretentious way. And then Dennis Hopper is interspliced in there yeah. talking in his own, <laughs> you know, in his own world. That's all I've seen. I mean, yeah. I wish I've seen more. But, uh. I remember, that was right <laughs> after uh, Easy Rider. Uh-huh. So Orson was showing. Anyway. Um, so, how much of the film have, have you seen? In terms of material, I mean, time-wise, well, I hours saw that. Hours or? I had, a, I obviously, I saw that forty-five minute thing, um, but I've also seen other. You know, I'm trying to remember. There's a, you know, who else was in the movie? Edmund O'Brien, ah. who's uh, I don't know if you, one of my favorite films, DOA. Yeah, he was the, the DOA guy. Um, he's in there. He's kind of he's kind of trashed a little bit, but he's older. And anyway. There's a scene on a bus between him and uh, Susan. Um, oh, Susan Strasberg. Strasberg. Yeah. Where they're a, day, a daytime scene where they're driving out of a studio or something. They're having a conversation again about God, what was it about the you know different kinds of Hollywood and what's really important. There's a scene in the uh, uh, in the projection room where the studio head um, is watching some of the assembled footage and. Um, 
Houston's uh, um, gopher is there trying to like, this is great, wait until you see this, this is perfect. Well, that may not be exactly what he had in mind. And, well, that's good. And uh, it was a funny scene. Um, there's the Century City scene with Oya and uh, the kid on a motorcycle. Yeah. Uh, no dialogue, as I recall. Yeah, I read about that in the cart book. It's yeah. sort of this big wide shot and it's just kind of well many different wide shots but yeah, yeah. and it and you know intersecting lines visually uh, stunning um, and uh, let's see oh boy I can't remember everything of course the party scene and there's some uh, I don't know it's just you know again it's like that jigsaw puzzle that has sections done yeah. So it's hard to remember everything. It, did it seem to you like the... Um, how, so how are the movie and the movie scenes? I've always wondered, mm-hmm. I mean, how does it come up that they appear? Is it just sort of arbitrary that they, you know, suddenly you're watching the birthday party and now we're inside the movie in a movie? Or well, it... in the script, or at least one of the versions, the guy, the studio head, is watching the movie mm-hmm. within the movie. So that was the device Orson used to... Transition. Um, yeah. Between, yeah. In practice, uh, Orson tried again. Remembering the time, this was the early '70s, um, where you know, mo- uh, modern American filmmaking was being done. So you would do anything. I mean, you know, people were jump cutting and flash framing and doing, you know, I'm flashbacking and doing all these weird things, pretty much for the first time. Uh, he would, you know, he would try just because one was color and the other was black and white. It became pretty apparent that one was this and one was that. Oh. So he would try to go directly. So some, was some of the birthday party sequences were those in black and white at all? Or yeah, uh, that I didn't realize. Yeah, is it? I mean, most of the birthday party black and well, white, or is it? I'm pretty sure if 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 it was if it was color, he was going to print it in black. I thought it was oh. going to be. Uh, and again, you know, it's been thirty some years, so. Um, or almost 30 years, and um, talk about 30 years like it's nothing now. <laughs> anyway, uh, I think the intention was that all that was going to be black and white, and yeah. that all the, that could be just the print, maybe that was my idea, maybe you only got a black and white print of it, but yeah. I'm pretty sure that that, you know, like I said, that stuff was shot in 35, the movie within the movie, yeah. was shot 35, it was beautiful, and very nicely lit, and the black and white stuff, the party and all the stuff going on there was pretty verite, you know, fairly. Mm-hmm. And there was even things of, like, people attending the party had cameras and you're sort of seeing things yeah. POV. I read about that in the cart book. That yeah. was part of that structure, too. Yeah. And then Orson had an idea that uh, they also had the still cameras and that he was going to... Again, Orson, very pragmatic. If uh, we had the audio for something but not the picture for something, he'd say, well, you know what we should do is... Just, We'll, get, we'll order, because you have to buy the... I mean, you have to make them in those days. We'll order a freeze frame of that picture and make it like a, a snapshot, you know, like as if it were a, uh, from a, a still camera, and we'll just keep the audio playing underneath it. Mm-hmm. And that way we can get the story points we need in there, and he can put new, new dialogue in. Orson was, you know, big on adding dialogue and changing dialogue. and um, he, he told me an interesting story um, about Kane. He said... Uh, um, you know, a lot of people. Well, somehow we started talking. He said, "You know, the uh, the low the the low ceilings. You know, the perspective and all that was highly acclaimed in the movie." And I and I think I remember asking him. I said, 
how did you come up with that? Was that Greg Toland? He goes, well, it was Greg Toland because I didn't care. I said, what do you mean you didn't care? He goes, I'm from radio. All I care about is the audio. Mm-hmm. You know, the, uh, make sure you can see the person and the audio. And I said, do whatever you have to do to get the microphones as close as possible to the people's voices. So if they put the microphones lower, they, if you put this, uh, a low ceiling made out of muslin, muslin um, you light it, it'll look solid, and then yeah. the audio goes right through it. So the microphone's right above people's voices. That's how we get good vo- audio. So, um, you know, Orson was, you know, Orson was very con- uh, involved with the dialogue. I mean, he taught me something, which, again, I told you one story that he taught me about, you know, try it. But another one was... Um, a film is about the audio before it's about the visual. Mm. It's about the dialogue. Make the dialogue work, the visuals will come along. You'll find a way to make it work visually. Yeah. And uh, most people, you know, they cut the picture first and then they make the audio uh, come along. Um, but it's the other way around. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. I, mean, I know he was always experimental with, like, you know, he would shoot you know, like wild pieces of audio and then put it in and, yeah. and stuff like that. So that was a huge part of it. And he changed lines. I mean, that's a lot of what we did with, it's, a, it's what we did with a lot of the older projects. I told you about, like, uh, Don Quixote, we did that. Um, and, uh, you know, even the, the TV shows. Um, not that he didn't like visuals, mind you. I mean, <laughs> it was, the magic show was beautifully shot. It's all these different colors and... Um, it was fascinating to to see, um, but uh, yeah, he was the dialogue to him was most important thing. Yeah, and it's where his roots were. That's true. Yeah, um, and how the story really gets told. Yeah, um, I was curious too. I mean, I've read so many articles recently about sort of Oya. I don't know how much you can get into this, but you know, Oya Kadar is kind of you know um, holding back the current deal, and you know, these all this kind of lore of her sabotaging deals. No, through the years, do you think that's that's I, I no? This there's is stuff no that's come out in the press recently. Yeah. So again, remember what we were talking before. It's about to me. It's about agendas. Yeah. What would someone's agenda be to do what they're doing? There's no reason that Oya. Okay, Oya's not going to like me saying this, <laughs> but is that's this okay. This is on the record. Okay. Oya won't like this, but um, she sold most of the stuff that. Orson left her. Um, the brass ring, the cradle will rock. Somehow they got you know something. I like, think the deep as well. That was turned into a movie yeah. with Nicole Kidman. Yeah, uh, Deep Calm, I believe it was yeah. called. Yeah. Oh, was that it? Yeah, I read oh that recently. It was, I didn't that was, know that. Yeah, that's true. With uh, the uh, with the guy from Titanic, Sam. Uh, well, I think it was Sam Neill. I think oh. played the. Uh, oh. oh no! Yeah, you're right. Billy Zane. Is yeah, that is that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so Oya has, and she's given stuff away to museums. She gave the one-man band to a museum in Germany and some other stuff. So she's not only sold things, she's given away things for, you know, uh, philanthropically. What would her agenda be to prevent this deal from going through? Especially if she was going to benefit from it financially and not just a little bit. Yeah. Doesn't make sense to me. So um, there's no reason why... Now, here's the thing about Oya. Um, not only was she the most beautiful woman I ever met up to that point, maybe even since, um, she was also one of the smartest. 
and she's not dumb. So if there's a deal going to be made and, and people are stand to make a lot of money off of it, she's not going to ask for a pittance. Or I'm sorry, not she's not going to be satisfied with a pittance. So if she ought, if she wants X amount of money, and they come back and say we only want it, we can only pay you a, a tenth of that, she'll say no. I'd rather just not be done. And there's a reason why. It's not just because she wants the money, but she knows that if the movie is going to get made properly, it's going to have to be made by somebody who wants to make it, mm. not by somebody who thinks they got a deal. Because if she gives up her part for a pittance, imagine how. They're going to make the movie, finish making the movie. They're going to be doing that. They're going to be cutting corners left and right, you know, and that's not the way to get that movie made. Yeah. Finished, I say. That's true. So it doesn't, there's no agenda there. I think it might be, I don't know, I could guess, but um, I can't imagine. No, and I know that over the years, look, I talked to her uh, about it, even in the mid-90s. You know, I think I told you I was trying to do something with my dad and this German guy, and she met with us a few times, and she was not difficult to deal with. Well, I mean, <laughs> she was very pleasant, and you know, but she stuck to her guns. But you know, she wasn't yeah. trying to say not strong sabotage. Person. Yeah, you know, she, she wanted wants. what she wants, yeah. and she, there's reasons why. And it's you know, like I said, she gave stuff away. You know. Yeah, I mean, I asked that just because so many articles and press things in yeah. the last few months, people have just been kind of throwing her under the bus, saying you know, sure. she's holding back on the deal. It's the easy way to do it. All this kind of stuff, but. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, there's so many different reasons. Like I said, there's. You know, I think we, it's a very trick. There's so many layers to this yeah. situation. Everybody has emotional stakes, financial stakes, yeah. and. Yeah, and that's you know that's what my dad uh, wasn't able to deal with that aspect of it, and he said, you know, it just I don't have the time. And to deal with it, and you know, it just you know, the chances are going to be very. And of course, in those days, that getting the negative out of France was really yeah. difficult. But and it's just the main thing is to try to get it done. Yeah. But uh, I'm I'm glad that Beatrice is on board with it because you know, it will certainly not hurt to get help get it done. Uh, are you Does optimistic at this point that uh, you know it could happen in a way? Um, I'm a positive person. Yeah, <laughs> definitely a positive person. I like to think on the on the bright side. Um, yeah, I you know I hope it can get done. Um, I don't know what it'll take. It just seems strange to me that it would take anything. You know, that it would be difficult in any way to get it done. I just don't understand why people aren't lining up to get involved in it. Yeah, I found that bizarre. I mean, even yeah. hearing about the crowdfunding campaign last yeah. year, I was just I was puzzled. Like, you know, why couldn't they? Yeah, I mean, it's just not yeah. That. I don't know. I yeah. mean, it's. Uh, um, I think you know, like you said earlier, I think uh, Orson's ghost is being haunted by this reputation, which was undeserved. Yeah. Um, that he doesn't, he can't finish something, and he can't get anything done. But I don't know. But he's not, you know, he's done, his part is done. He did his part. Yeah. I think fortunately uh, this month, Chimes of Midnight was finally released, which is incredible. Yeah. So well, so Tosca's in that. Ah. If you want to see what he looked like. This was, what was it, 60, mid-60s or something? Yeah, around that, yeah. Yeah, he plays a, a bishop or something. So if you see a bishop with a really long patrician face, that'll be him. <laughs> <laughs> but he's, yeah, that, that's, a, and he's funny. Orson's funny in that. Yeah, he has such a great performance. I think John Moreau, too, was uh, wonderful. 
God, I haven't seen that in so long. I think I saw it when it was he had a copy of it somewhere. Yeah. And the uh, like the battle scene they do on the beach is just mm. visually, it's I mean, very yeah, impressive. I'd like to see it. Is it high def? Yeah, I think so. They uh, oh, cool. they did a transfer of it, and they're showing it in different cities. I think it stopped playing in L.A. I didn't have a chance to see it, but mm. they're going to do a DVD release and a whole thing. So great! Yeah, I can't there. wait to see it. Uh, lastly, I was just curious um, if there's sort of like a, a cherished memory that you have with Orson that sort of comes to mind. Well, we didn't. You know, anybody wants to read more about my experiences with Orson can pick up that book by Peter Tonget. There's some very funny stories in there so um, you know anything from you know learning about film and uh, which is it's a hilarious title Orson Welles my cinematographers editors and magicians like, oh. um, well there's one bittersweet and one kind of funny the one about uh, I remember work you know sitting with him coming in when he's on the phone and he's talking to some uh, um you know, voiceover company, and he's saying that. Okay, so I understand the script is supposed to. I'm supposed to say an emotion to me to go write write this down. You know, yeah. Just take notes. I'm like, wow. Okay. Uh, so I'm supposed to say, if I were, if I were that person. No, that doesn't sound right. It shouldn't be. So I'm writing down if that were. No, no, no. Scratch that out. That should be, if I was that person. Because you know the word was and word was meant, so I'd scratch out and put down what, and then I'd scratch it. And he's just all motioning and talking on the phone. And finally, he was, you know, I'm writing. I have all these different versions of that thing. And finally, he says, "Okay, uh, well, which one do you? Th- oh, okay, all right, that's fine." Click. And I'm going, Orson, no, I don't know which one you're sp- I'm supposed to write. He goes, "What do you mean? Didn't you write down what I'm supposed to say? I'm not going to remember what I'm supposed to say." I said, "Orson, you went, you hung up so fast." He goes, "Thank God you weren't on Citizen Kane with me. You would have said Rose what? <laughs> Rose who?" Uh, he, had a, he had a great sense of humor, but the bittersweet one, which was really the real Orson, we used to talk about so many different things because, like I said, and then toward the end, he, it was hard for him to get down those stairs and to come back. Um, so I spent a lot of time with him in his, in, in his house, in the living room. And, you know, I'd be done working around 7 o'clock. I'd come up and say, okay, Orson, here's what I did and this and that. And he'd say, sit down, John, let's have a drink or let's talk and you know, you know what's the news is on. You want to watch the news with me? He loved the news and talk about the news things. I still have a passion for the news now, po- political mostly. Orson was very politically inclined, as you probably know. Um, and then sometimes he'd want to. Sometimes he wanted to watch WKRP, his favorite show, and laugh. And we'd laugh together. And we'd tell. You know, he'd ask me what's going on with me, and uh, you know, he'd tell me stories about like, don't make this mistake that I made. Don't take pills to lose weight, because I'm kind of a little overweight, always have been. Don't take the, they made me take the pills, and those things are terrible. And do this and do that. You know, he, gave me, he would give me advice about stuff. And I'd sit up there with him for hours sometimes, you know, until maybe three, four hours sometimes. And we'd just chit, chit-chat about nothing. And it kind of, when I'd left, some of me would feel good. Orson Welles took an interest in me. And some of me would feel bittersweet that... Orson Welles doesn't have anybody better than me to talk to. I mean, here's a guy who made the best, some of the best movies in the, in Hollywood cinema, um, and that people aren't just like, you know, he's not, he doesn't have like people sitting at his feet, and he's not, you know, teaching. And so it was kind of sad in that respect too. But uh, I'm not sure how much of that was Orson, or and how much of that was just he had kind of a strange relationship with. Uh, 
you know, with Hollywood. They don't, you know, they don't, uh, they didn't uh, embrace him the way um, they embraced other people. And he didn't, you know, he didn't really play their game the way he, other people did. Yeah, and you realize so. at a certain point he sort of took, he took acting roles and he kind of yeah. left to do direct films, you know, outside of the country and yeah, he kind of distanced himself a little bit. Yeah. And he had, you know, I mean, I don't know if it was because he had that amazing contract with RKO, um, nobody could touch his movie, um, but certainly Amberson's changed everything, I'm sure that, and the documentary in Rio, you know, left bad taste in his mouth. Yeah. Um, Interesting uh, tidbit that I learned um, mm-hmm. from this conference at Chapman University was that Joseph McBride, um, who wrote a book about Orson years ago, he actually uh, has a lead on finding the missing Amberson's footage. Oh, really? So I'd love you know, to see that. That's a possibility. Yeah. He like went somewhere in Brazil and supposedly wow. may you know find it. It's a beautifully soon, so. shot movie and interestingly acted. Of course, that one actor I'm not a big fan of the the kid, but um, otherwise I'm sort of you know I'm just like uh, yeah. No, I watched the hour and twenty minutes and there's all these yeah. like moments that are interesting, but then it's yeah. sort of how it all comes yeah. together. You know, there's obviously you can tell there's stuff missing. Touch of Evil is Orson. Orson, I didn't watch all of Orson's movies before I'd seen him, before I met him. He was not happy with that. And so sometimes you tell me, you know, they're, they're playing this movie over there, you go see it. Because, you know, videotapes were expensive in those days, the early 80s. Um, and, you know, if they show on TV, he said, don't even watch. So uh, there were a few movies that I'd seen, and um, I mean, I hadn't seen quite a few of them. Um, so he made me go see Touch of Evil was playing and uh, I love Citizen Kane it's amazing for everything but Touch of Evil still to this day is you know says so much about our society the kid that 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 um, what's his name there you know that Orson's character um, framed was guilty but is that is that proper you know he was successful in what his mission, but he framed him and got him killed. So, you know, is that problem? Look at what what we're going through now with, uh, you know, with um, um, G- Gatan, um, uh, G- oh, Gitmo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you. With Gitmo and and our, you know the, what we've gone through, uh, you know, morally with these wars, you know, is it is the is the means important or just the ends? And to this character, it was just the ends. And then also the relationship between the two, um, you know, uh, Orson's character and uh, his, his partner. Um, you know, the love the two men felt for each other, but yet he had to try to set him on the right path. Yeah. And it ended up killing him. I think what's interesting, him handling that material, because I believe he was sort of like a director for hire in a way. Mm-hmm. I feel like in the hands of somebody else, it yeah. wouldn't have had that complexity that you, that you yeah I don't know out. I don't think so and it, it just you know it just is stunning to to see the relationships that go on and there's some amazing stuff the funny stuff between Janet Lee and uh, crazy stuff at the motel yeah that's that stuff's crazy and then uh, you know and Marlena being in there and the thing he said she said about him is you know was pretty much his his uh, his epitaph which is you know what do you say about a man he was quite a man you know and that's what you kind of say about Orson you know, what is there to say about him? 